So we decided to go content first and to, again, connect with her and to build a brand. Um, And so we organically grew from mom to mom sharing of our content to like 30 million women a month engaging with our content organically. No money to Facebook or Google. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That Worked. This week, I'm joined by Jill Koziel. Jill is the co-founder and CEO of Motherly. Motherly is a well-being destination empowering mothers to thrive, an Inc. 5000 fastest-growing private company, and a Parity.org best company for women to advance. Motherly is built for mothers by mothers. Engaging an audience of 40 million readers and viewers a month, Motherly offers on-demand parent education classes, Webby Award-winning videos, the Motherly podcast, essays and articles, and a highly engaged social media community. Jill is also the co-author of The Motherly Guide to Becoming Mama, Redefining the Pregnancy, Birth, and Postpartum Journey, and This is Motherhood, a motherly collection of reflections and practices. This was one of my most interesting interviews to date. Jill gave some great frameworks on how to have difficult conversations and how to get smart quickly on a subject. These were both things that she had learned in her consulting background, and she gave us the full picture on how she uses this in Motherly today. Just in case you missed this, Motherly gets 40 million readers and viewers a month. What's even crazier is how fast they got there. Jill gave a full breakdown on how they did it, and I was blown away. And typically you would think, That is going to be the most interesting part of the interview, and it was incredibly interesting, but then she went on to talk about the State of Motherhood survey, and if you haven't heard of this before, it's the largest statistically significant survey and study on mothers, and Jill told us exactly how they built it. More than that, how they use it to drive their entire content strategy. I thought it was so interesting and it made me completely rethink my entire content strategy. So with that, let's get to the show. Jill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here. I've been looking forward to this episode and the place where I'd love to kick this off is tell us about your first long haul trip at Motherly. Uh, work travel as any working parent, especially working mom knows can be very challenging. This was in, I believe 2017, maybe 2018. I had a two and a half year old daughter and a four and a half year old daughter. And I had to go to Hong Kong and mainland China, um, as we were starting to look into motherly branded and produced products. When you go on a trip to China from the West coast, it's an overnight trip typically. And so I had the ability to tuck my children into bed at night, you know, pass the reins over to my husband. And I thought I'd nailed it. I thought they're in bed. They're going to wake up in the morning. They'll see my husband, smiling faces, all will be good. And I had prepared them. I was going to be gone for five days, which was the longest I had been gone in my work experience for my children. 
I'm boarding the plane. Everything seems to be fine. Suddenly I receive a phone call from my husband. And before he can even say anything, I hear what sounds like an absolute night terror scream from my youngest daughter, uh, my two and a half year old. And he's trying to talk, but she's screaming so loudly that of course, all she wants is me, right? And I am literally boarding this overnight flight. And so I'm trying to calm her down over the voice, but she doesn't understand why mommy isn't there in the first place. I typically sing and still do actually with nine and 11 year old daughters. Um, I won't put your listeners through hearing me sing, uh, but but I, I sing to them every night. And so I started singing lullabies. And as you know, when you get on a plane, they close the door, like cell phones are off, but she's still screaming and I'm still trying to get through. I'm frantic. I have the same visceral response any parent has. Like, I actually want to get off the plane, right? Um, and so I feel really torn in two. I want to get off the plane and go comfort my child, but I also know how incredibly important this trip is for our business, um, for motherly. And the flight attendant was like, just go ahead. Just, I get it. I'm a working mom too. Just keep on singing, lady. <laughs> and so um, I was actually able through the whole takeoff process until the phone like actually cut off and didn't have signal, was singing my daughter to sleep, taking off. Um, and that separation time is always really hard, like the actual separation. While I'm gone, she was thriving and was great. But the return back was challenging those five days. I mean, I feel like she was in this prime moment and stage of attachment. Um, and you have to like really attach with your caregivers to be able to separate from them effectively. And so we did, we dealt with some like attachment and separation anxiety and issues after I came back from that trip. And it truly took a couple years really to come back from that. Um, like dropping her off at preschool became more difficult for a while and, and things like that. So that's one of those stories that's like deep inside me as a working parent that I'm sure others can relate to. No question about it. You answered a question that was on my mind. Was like, what did you come home to? Like, what like, was this like animal house that you came home to? You know, one of the most important decisions a mother or a woman um, who wants to have children can make for their career is who they marry. And so I made a good decision in marrying my husband, who's been incredibly supportive and incredibly capable of helping with our children and, and leading um, with our children. And so, yeah, there was, you know, things weren't exactly how I do them uh, when I returned. <laughs> and my children were very, very happy to see me. It wasn't the initial response, because that was like joyful and wonderful. It was the realization that then when I was leaving, had to leave her again, whether that was preschool or for a date night or something else that it was harder for a while. Um, she was just so little then, and it was a pretty traumatic experience for her in that moment. Um, I I actually, she's nine and a half now, I actually said to my husband less than a month ago, I said, I feel like for the first time, because she's always been like way more attached to me, and it almost felt like that was this like defining moment. And I said, for the first time, I feel like Catherine's really fully attached in a good way that she can really start to be like much more independent and separate. And so not to scare any working parents about <laughs> that, um, but it's a hard thing that we do as working parents and having to travel and having to balance those things. It's really challenging for a career that in today's connected world requires business travel. Yeah. And you're no, you couldn't have been any stranger to travel just in general because your background is largely in consulting. Is that right? Yes. Um, however, my consulting was largely in the Washington, D.C. area in my career because it was for a lot of defense intelligence organizations and defense contractors that tend to be more based there. And, you know, children have really short term memories. So even if I had traveled a little bit and wasn't available as much for different periods of time, 
I believe I had been home and not traveling for, you know, probably a year, right? Or six months. I hadn't really had a business trip for whatever reason, probably because, you know, motherly had no money to cover any, any <laughs> travel at that time. This was different. Kids can, they can acclimate and get adjusted to things, but they also have a short memory. So if you haven't done it in a while, it feels more jarring. Tell us a little bit about the career that led up before motherly. Ah, uh, yes. It's a stark comparison. I'm still surprised today that I've landed in this woman-centered industry and space around motherhood. Going way, way back, I am a first-generation college student um, from a very rural area in Maryland. I was always interested in international relations and government and had a vision of a world that was bigger than what I grew up in. So I went to a state school in Maryland and I majored in political science and economics focused on more international political science. And while at undergrad, I had an internship working in international relief and development, which I loved, working a lot in Western Africa, not me working there, but supporting development efforts in Western Africa. And I absolutely loved it. The challenge, um, which my father was very smart and felt at the moment cruel, you know, helped me realize was that I was not going to be able to support myself in the way that I wanted in the nonprofit world, in the nonprofit sector. And so I made a bit of a pivot and I started um, working in consulting and started because I, I loved government and felt like I could make an impact there. But my worry was that sometimes change coming from inside is actually slower than bringing it from the outside. Um, and so I started doing some consulting work with the United States Institute of Peace, working there. I also went to grad school for international security studies in parallel, and then went to a small boutique consulting firm called Toffler Associates in the, the D.C. area. And through them, taking a very future-oriented lens on international security and issues, started working in defense intelligence and working. So that's basically all of the three-letter agencies. That's <laughs> NSA, uh, DIA, NGA, you know, all, all of those three-letter agencies, as well as the defense contractors that support them. So one of the things that I'm super curious about is where did you have this entrepreneurship bug your whole life or what drove that? Where did that come from? So I definitely believe in that if you see it, you can be it. And so my, while not quite a woman, um, my, my father is a small business entrepreneur in Maryland. And so I was exposed to entrepreneurship for as long as I can remember. The dinner table was conversations about business. I saw the highs and the lows of business throughout my entire childhood. But I also saw as part of that, how it enabled him to be a leader in our community and the impact that he could make and the respect that that garnered for him as well. And so I think it's something for me that I aspired to in the back of my mind and that always felt within reach to me because I'd seen it, but I didn't go out, you know, I didn't go in a business degree. Like it wasn't what I was like focused on or thinking I was going to do. Consulting really empowered me from a a real-world experience way to get the skills that I believe are critical in entrepreneurship. So I didn't feel like there was a barrier to my own mental ability to see myself as an entrepreneur because of my father. And then through consulting, you're solving new problems every day. You're getting smart fast. There's a lot of context switching. And that is like the foundation of entrepreneurship because you have to feel empowered to go do something no one else has done, right? And so you have to feel like, you're really capable of learning and figuring it out, right, at every step of the way. And I learned that through my consulting work. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing you say is it was kind of a foregone conclusion. You were going to do this at some point. 
And almost what you didn't expect was when I went to consulting, it's like, oh, okay, now I've got all the skills. I've already had the mindset that I wanted to do this. Now I've, I've rounded this out with the skills. Is that right or am I wrong on that? No, it's not that I wanted to do it. Again, I didn't go decide to major in business or do something. I wanted to be working in international security. Like I wanted to work for the UN or, you know, be having major impact at like the governmental international level. But I think when the opportunity presented itself to me later, I did not feel intimidated by it because I had seen it and been there. And then I had also had all of this. I had the framework, the consulting frameworks that you get that in many ways are like a business degree. Right. But like in real world, uh, you know, applicable business degree skills that I gained through consulting. Do you have any of those frameworks that come to mind where you were like, this was a framework that helped me a ton that I highly recommend? So one is getting smart fast. I think so often people are overwhelmed by what's out there and they try to either, they're they're either paralyzed by the amount of information that's available and don't know how to actually synthesize it and get to an answer. And so they just freeze or they try to boil the ocean, as we say. And so they try to like learn all the things. And what I learned through consulting is that when you just go out and talk to smart people and ask questions, you can learn really, really fast. And so leveraging interviews, which ultimately led me to take a design thinking approach with Motherly, uh, which is very user-oriented and interview-oriented to get to the heart of the problem that you're going to try to solve for. So that's one. The other is, uh, it seems crazy now, but I was in my late 20s, you know, Ed was doing an executive coaching. I, I ended up building up an executive coaching area within our consulting firm. Um, And I was a business director around organizational change and large organization transformation. And I went and became an executive coach and I developed a coaching protocol um, that I used on middle managers moving into the senior executive service in our government. And so that meant that as this late 20-something person, I was providing executive coaching to much older and more experienced, frankly, people than I. And so one that taught me not to be intimidated by people. We're all just people. And, you know, if I'm going in and talking to a captain in the Marine Corps, I actually have value to add in that conversation. Um, But that executive coaching framework that I then actually taught and and trained our other consultants on is something that I still use with my own team, Um, whether it's, you know, how to have fierce conversations and things or how to help people um, with delegation, as an example. Yeah, I tell people all the time, if people are interested in doing a podcast, do it for that reason alone. You're going to talk with so many people that are highly successful. And one of the biggest takeaways you'll have is these are just people. 100%. These are are literally just people. I know I keep diving into this, but I'm so curious. When you say the fierce conversation, what does that look like? So it's a confrontation model. I think there's even a book around fierce conversations. Um, It's been a long time since I've read it, but I believe I pulled a lot of that model from this book around fierce conversations. And so it's a confrontation model. A lot of people make mistakes in how they have difficult conversations. And one is the sandwich (laughs) approach. They'll say something really nice, they'll give the feedback, and then they'll say something really nice. And the person is left very confused. Other people will be so intimidated by the conversation that they will come in and um, like a machine gun like mentality and like leave the person like left like, whoa, (laughs) I don't even know where to go from here. Right. And so not really. No confidence. Exactly. (laughs) There is a confrontation model that I I use and, have you know, my own team, you know, talks about how to do this where you come in and you start off immediately with like, I'm concerned about X right? Like very clear statement. And you prep this beforehand, right? You come prepared to the conversation. So I'm really concerned about X. 
this, I've heard X, Y, and Z, or I've experienced or seen X, Y, and Z. That kind of validates it a little bit. This is important because of why. This is impacting the business in some way or, or me in some way, right? I'm, I'm concerned about this for this reason. This is why it matters. And then also adding in, this is how I've contributed to this. Looking at the situation, I can see how I've contributed in this way. And I really want to hear from you. How are you seeing the situation um, so that we can determine where to come from here? And then you listen. So often in a confrontation, people are coming with a predetermined outcome at the end. And so instead, there's an opportunity then for this to be a real feedback conversation. And the goal at the end of those confrontations of sorts is that they don't feel confrontational in the end, that you feel like you've really come to a place of understanding with a true path forward. And sometimes a true path forward is this isn't going to work for us, right? But you're not stuck in this limbo land, right? Like there's there's real clarity that can come out of that conversation. Because after you've listened, a really key part of it is to reflect back what you heard. You said that in this conversation even. You said, so what I'm hearing you say is X. And that gives the person an opportunity to validate, and that makes them feel validated, or to put a small nuance or different point into what you've relayed back to them. Well, and, you know, if you think about this, what I had just mentioned there, I replayed that back how I thought I heard it, and I was wrong, right? right, when, right. when you came in there, it's like, well, no, it's not exactly that. It's this. But one of the things that you mentioned in particular that I think is super important, and I'm always blown away by this, when you ask somebody... Two things. One, you lead with kind of, hey, here's how I'm taking accountability in this situation. And then two, what do you think? And nine times out of 10, they know exactly what to do. They've got the right answer. And it's kind of, we just say it's listening, validating, make sure you heard it right. And then you go, you don't need to have somebody buy into whatever the vision is. They're already bought in. And it's nine times out of 10 the right way. Have you found that to be that the case in your experience? A hundred percent. Most of the time, I mean, nine times out of 10, to your point, this is not a surprise that a conversation needs to be had, right? We're all pretty intuitive, uh, right, when it comes to these things. If something's not working for me in a situation, it's probably not working for the other person in some way. And so it really is like who feels empowered to lead first to start the conversation, but anticipating that both parties want to have the conversation and have value to add in the conversation And again, I think the challenge can be when you're a manager or a leader, or even in other relationships, like with my own husband, is making assumptions about what the other person thinks should happen and having a predetermined outcome in mind that really closes off the options available for a path forward. It's amazing how many times that my assumption has proved to be wrong, like real fast and how different I come at it, which is something I try to remind myself of, but I'm not always the best at it. I will say that for a fact. And to be clear, I have these skills and I know how to do it. I screw it up all the time. So this (laughs) is, um, but to the point, like when you've had an experience where I'm like, maybe I've like totally botched this, right? Being able to go back to the framework and to know that it didn't do it right, but reminding myself, geez, Jill, like, you know how to do this. I really live by like, just do the next right thing. I am not going to get it right. Even just culturally, our society is evolving so quickly, um, which is a challenge, I think, for leaders these days. And so I am going to get it wrong. I'm going to put my foot in my mouth. As soon as I realize it, I will claim it. I will, even in like an all hand situation, there have been times where I have said something and I have realized, oh my gosh, that is not going to be perceived well. That is not what I meant. And rather than waiting until a week later or later that day when someone calls me out on it, even if the conversation has moved on, I will actually say, 
And guys, I just want to, one moment. I said, you know, three minutes ago, this thing that feels off. Like, that's not what I intended. I want to try that again. I'm really sorry if like that came across or hit someone in a certain way. The closer to the incident, the better. And over time, I think you get to the point where you just don't botch stuff as much. Oh, I am, consider do the next right thing stolen. I am 100% well, stealing I stole it from Frozen, one of the trolls. <laughs> The troll king, or is he a troll? I don't know if that's the right word. But the king of like the troll, I think it was a troll. That is what he says in one of the songs. And so it's become like a mantra at Motherly since it came out in Frozen. Um, everyone thinks that like Anna or Elsa said it, um, but it was one of the troll kings. I love it even more now. Uh, <laughs> that is fantastic. All right. So how did Motherly start? What's the origin story of how Motherly came to be? So... My co-founder, Liz Kennedy, um, was an award-winning journalist and editor from the Washington Post, total genius in content strategy and the such. Uh, she and I had led parallel lives for a while um, without ever meeting. Both of our husbands went to the Naval Academy. We both went to Georgetown. We lived in the D.C. area. I was there for grad school, her for undergrad. We lived in the D.C. area when we had our first children. I think we had our, our first two children like within six weeks of each other even and never met. Both of our husbands served overseas in the military, and so we were away from them at different points when we were raising children early on. And then they both went to business school out at Stanford, and that is where we finally met. Um, we both had two young children. We were working moms, and so we didn't have time, really, to meet or to see each other. Um, but a couple years later, after we met maybe two times socially, I received a phone call or an email first from Liz asked, saying that she was feeling entrepreneurial while, you know, when in Rome in Silicon Valley, and she had some ideas around motherhood and how to portray it in a more modern way and to better serve the new digitally native audience that was coming up and becoming parents. And every time she was talking about it in kind of the Stanford, Silicon Valley area, people kept saying, oh, you should go talk to Jill Koziel because... I too, while my husband was at Stanford, felt entrepreneurial and I launched my first company um, with another co-founder. Um, we invented, patented, and brought to market a baby goods product that converted regular playground swings into baby swings. So patented inventor, learned how to market to moms, got it placed in every baby's RS around the country, and then licensed it to an outdoor adventure company. And so while I didn't see myself as an expert at the time in mothers or in motherhood, I had started to get a reputation as someone who understood this space. And so she called me and I'll never forget, I was in Tribeca at a little cafe and it was like falling in love is the only way we both describe it. It was this moment of like intellectual, professional falling in love where we were left breathless. We were finishing each other's sentences. It just felt like the universe had kept us like in parallel for a while until this was the moment we were to meet. And we launched Motherly because it didn't exist. Everything was so outdated and antiquated around motherhood. And you had a generation of millennials that was coming of age, that was digitally native, that the mothers were super educated, for the first time more educated than men, and that was very diverse. And so the legacy players out there just were not speaking to her. We're not speaking to us. And so we felt really compelled to build a next generation brand that could redefine motherhood with and for this generation. So one of the things I'm super curious about is everything you said makes total sense as to like why to build it and why people would be interested in it. Didn't exist. It wasn't modern. You had an opportunity to come in here and build a, a, just a much better resource for people. 
What was the original business model? Was it we're going to get a ton of eyeballs and we're going to sell and we're going to have ad sales or what the, like what was kind of that that I always struggle with this personally because I've got I do something similar as well. No, no, it's a really good question um, because this is back in 2015. This is when like Facebook had just figured out how to monetize, right? Like in Silicon Valley, venture backed world, like people didn't think about this back then. I mean, we we now are already accustomed to the venture world and business as a whole thinking a lot more, rightfully so, about profitability. But that's not the way it was, right? In 2015, we were both kind of drinking from the fire hose of what it was to be in Silicon Valley at that time. But Many companies pivot and change over time, their strategy or their overall vision. For better or for worse, I'm hoping it's for better later. If you go back to my initial slide pitch decks and the such of like what we were doing with Motherly, it's the same as it is now. We were building a company that would sit at the intersection of content, community, and commerce. And I liked C's at the time, I guess. And our strategy, (laughs) which gets to monetization, was to connect, condition, convert. And so that meant that the first thing we were going to do without thinking about monetization was to build an audience organically through content and emotionally connecting with her and to build that brand. Um, And because Liz had all of those, we could have started with product. This is back when like Warby Parker and all these others were like focused on building product first Mm -hmm. and then building a brand around that and then doing it. My perspective then and still is now was that all of those, not to put, you know, a fine point on like Warby Parker specifically, because it's been a, a massive success, and but a lot of D2C brands were coming up. And what I was witnessing was that venture capitalists, that, that entrepreneurs were going to venture capitalists on Sand Hill Road, which is on one side of town in like the Menlo Park area um, in California and Silicon Valley. They were picking up their suitcases of cash, right, and their investment, and they were effectively <laughs> driving it across town and giving it to Facebook and Google. And so what that meant is that Silicon Valley and all of the VCs were effectively still investing in Google and Facebook. And to me, what I was seeing was that customer acquisition costs go up over time, not down. And so what all of these D2C brands that were just paying for all of this, like the pipe, it comes due, right? And so they ultimately had to find a way to authentically connect and build an ongoing relationship with their audience. And so we decided to go content first and to, again, connect with her and to build a brand. Um, And so we organically grew from mom to mom sharing of our content to like 30 million women a month engaging with our content organically, no money to Facebook or Google. Then our strategy was to monetize um, first as a digital media platform through less ads, like on the programmatic way, like indirect way, but more custom content, top of the funnel, brand awareness stuff. And through that, we were not only getting some revenue in the door, but we were also conditioning her that we motherly have earned her trust and credibility that we are now influencing and driving her purchase decisions in a powerful way, right? And then the last piece now, which we're still in process with and COVID kind of upset for a bit, but we are now in the process where we are moving forward with the the final piece of this, which is to convert and to convert this large, highly engaged audience that into a loyal motherly consumer and ambassador. And that is, again, into the commerce. So many questions. Uh, (laughs) um, Okay, I want to go back to... 30 million a month that quick. Was it starting with just creating blog articles or was it Instagram and Facebook like organically posting, not paid ads? How did you get to that many that fast? 
So the answer is yes to all of those things. Um, <laughs> Liz says that like she gave herself carpal tunnel, like that first, like before we <laughs> launched, bet. you know, writing, like pressing all the buttons and writing all the articles. It was a lot of content writing. We were hitting a real, there was a white space to your point, like this needed to exist. Mom was so thirsty for this. Motherhood until motherly was in many ways was treated as cartoonish, right? It was media was feeding into these mommy wars instead of focusing on these things that are really universal pain points and challenges. And it was not acknowledging that motherhood is aspirational, um, that this generation of women was having children later. And like, yes, it's hard, but it's also beautiful. And there's so much more that unites us than divides us. And so our content really reflected that. Mom was sharing these things on Facebook initially. A lot of it was driven by Facebook at the time because um, it was 2016. And so sharing our content because they felt seen for the first time. And so we were doing not only content that was around motherhood topics from a news and trending or service oriented from like child development or you know parenting perspective, but we also did motherly stories, which are first person essays that would really get to the heart of an issue. And then... What really happened for us from an audience trajectory standpoint, really kind of that hockey stick that you want to see, is we would take those motherly, high-performing content, written content, and we turned it into video. And we created a social format. Motherly was really one of the leaders in this around taking a personal essay and turning that into a video format. And it went bananas because that is the time when Facebook and the algorithms really incentivizing that. And the user, we, we've always been multi-platform. I, I didn't care that she was coming to our website only because of my ultimate goal, right? Um, I really wanted to meet mom where she was. And so we've always had a really multi-platform approach to that. That is so interesting. And that's still, I mean, if you started out written, moved to video, if you if you started out video, take your best video and turn that into articles, it's still a great strategy. But in there, that was like kind of groundbreaking, really. No, no. So yes, it was. It was very different. And again, I, Liz is a genius content strategist and she had done some video work. And, you know, this is one of those things where we were both our audience. And so we had great gut instincts on things. But back to what I mentioned before, leveraging a design thinking approach where we got out from behind ourselves and really, really tried to understand our audience and where they were and using what we call motherly insights as this like predictive analytics engine of sorts, which was very manual, frankly. But it's a constant, like social provides a really quick feedback loop. And so in the very early days, um, we were also trying to define what our voice is. I'm very much a brand builder and getting that voice and that tone right was very, very hard. And I believe that you have to create really strong like guardrails and constraints so that now I would offer people know motherly when they see it. If they're scrolling through their feed, they'll know. If you were to like read them something, they'll know it was motherly. Um, and others over the years have certainly borrowed um, along the way, like some of our approaches. But I think that we've stayed really, really true to who and what we are. And because of that, people reflect back to me the values and what motherly stands for. And they associate their own identity with that. How do you get to that point? Is it something that just organically comes as you start to build your own, like, for example, stand-up, right? Stand-up, they say it takes seven years, which makes sense. You got to go up over and over and over and over again, and then you start to find it. Or is there a process or a framework in which you've used to get to that point? This was, for me, pretty intuitive, I have to say. Um, and again, I, little pits of, bits of your, your past, you know, and your experiences kind of come together. I remember Liz actually saying to me at one point, she's like, 
you keep saying brand and I'm not sure I know what that means, right? Like coming from a content perspective. And the way I describe it is that a brand is almost, not almost, a brand ultimately is a belief system. And you are conveying through different mediums and methods, the beliefs, right? That you're trying to convey to this audience. And you know that you've got an actual brand, again, when that is mirrored back to you by your audience and that they start to identify in the same way they do with the belief system with the brand. Um, So to start to feel like I am a motherly mama, right? And so that starts, it can start at different points with it for any brand. Like some people can think think of it from like a visual perspective, but you have to take a systems level approach with it. And for us, because we were starting with written content, the voice was most important. And so in the very early days, um, we were republishing some content that was good because we couldn't create it all ourselves in the early days. And so Liz would be reading through an article and she would come to me and say, is this motherly, right? And that's how you figure it out, right? Like, is this motherly? And that would start a conversation between us. And I would say, well, she's using curse words in that. That doesn't feel motherly. Um, And curse words is an interesting one because I've got a pretty hard line that cursing offends some, but the absence offends no one. So let's just not do it. We're trying to build a big business, right? So curse words. So I'd be like, that doesn't feel quite right. And then it would be, um, this is really funny, but like she's making fun of her kids. It's like funny at the expense of her kids, right? In the way she was writing or at her partner. I was like, nope, motherly's not going to do that either. Like we're going to like find humor in motherhood, but we're going to take motherhood seriously. And we're certainly not going to denigrate our children or our partners in this. The guardrails started to get tighter and tighter so that about three months in, when Liz would ask that question, like, oh, what do you think of this one? And I would say, if you have to ask, you know the answer. And that's how it started, right? And then now we've got a very extensive editorial guideline and brand books and all of these things that align. And we used to have, I still do a brand boot camp for any new employee coming on so they can hear directly from me about it. But frankly, when we hire people now, they have seen motherly out in the world, like they get it already now. Yeah, almost like they would have a feeling of, I can't believe I just turned that in. Like if I wrote a piece, like an article, it's like, I can't do this because I know this is off brand. Because that's one of the things I was super curious about is, because at some point when you're putting out the type of the sheer volume and to maintain that quality, I have to assume that editorial guidelines are very crystal clear where somebody can come in and fairly quickly be able to start writing. One of the things I'm curious about is... And maybe this gets back to what you mentioned earlier about how do you continue to stay on top of what's relevant and what content to build? Does that come from surveys and interviews and things like that? What does that look like? So one is definitely still the feedback loop, right? With, I mean, the one thing about social media and the internet as a whole is like, if you air off, like people will tell you. Um, and so <laughs> yes. we definitely, and we have those moments, right? We're like, we're like, ooh, we missed it on that one. Um, and so, you know, they'll, they'll bring you back, right? Where you need to be. But also, yes. Yeah, so we, for six years now, have run the largest statistically significant study on mothers. Um, it's called the Motherly State of Motherhood um, Survey and Study Report. We survey 10 to 20,000 women every single year. And this is not a small survey. This takes like 10 to 15 minutes to take. And we get that many women. So that just goes to show like the commitment and dedication to our brand and to to their belief that we can be their voice for them. And then unlike most, and this comes from my consulting days too, we don't just like deliver the raw results out. Um, We actually do the hard work to weight the data to the U.S. Census, which is what makes it the largest statistically significant study. I did a lot of surveying work and the such in my consulting days. And so 
There were some things that stay the same. And so now six years in, we're able to see trends and changes um, over time. And then there's things that are more topical, like Obviously, two years ago, we were asking a lot of questions about COVID. This year, we were asking a lot more questions about the economy um, because these are things that are relevant. And with our team, from a content perspective, I offer two things to them. One, this is how the country as a whole, that's like our fully like weighted data, how that is. This is important for you to know, and this is what we're reporting on, ultimately. But then look at the raw data that hasn't been weighted yet, and that data tells you about our audience. And so it's finding that place between those and to understand what does she care about? What does she want to read about? And where is mom today? And making sure that we're meeting her where she is. I think that is so interesting. Here's a question I have on that. Do you partner with a third party on that? Do you hire the people internally to be able to handle that? What does that look like? Um, So it's evolved and changed over time. You know, six years ago when we first did it, you know, I was the expert that knew how to do it. So I led it um, and worked on drafting out the initial one. And then we we really just sent it out to our own audience, like organically. Over time, it's become more and more robust. I'd say the last like three, four years of it are top, top notch. And so we have one partnered with others to ensure that we're actually getting like a bright, motherly is very broken out across the US. We're not a coastal kind of thing. Like we're, there are motherly audience members are all over the country, but we still want to work with partners to have them A, ask questions they might want to ask. And in return, they will distribute this to their audience on our behalf as well. And so we get a broader cross section of the world. So we have partners through that. And then the analysis, and then we do a lot of the distribution, we do all the report building ourselves, but we do for the analysis side of it, take it to a third party group that actually goes and runs that. And so it's been the same group actually that we've used the entire time. Um, So they know the data themselves, they do all the waiting for us, and then they do an initial report. And then we look at it thematically as well. And by the way, we make all of this data 100% open source. So it's all available on Motherly and just got off an interview with Bloomberg talking about a lot of the research that came out of this year's. And so we're trying to empower mothers and their allies and others with information to drive forward the conversation about motherhood in America. What impact has this had on motherly just as a whole? So one of our core company values is that we take motherhood seriously. Um, and that's a differentiator for us. And this is one way that we live that value, you know, in and of itself. And I didn't set out to really like run a media business, frankly, with this. It's taken us a little longer to get to the commerce part than I would have liked, but it's so important. The media is so important as like a mechanism to drive forward the conversation. And it's been really critical and important to me that motherly not contribute to the polarization in this country. And so the data helps me to keep our team aligned on where our mom is from an advocacy standpoint. So we are gonna create a safe space to talk about things that people are not aligned on in this country. And we're not gonna actually have a position or advocate for something unless 75, 85% of our moms are aligned on it in the US. And so it's been really important to make sure that Motherly is leading the conversation and also not polarizing people as we grow in scale. Um, So that's one important way. Um, It also has raised our visibility. Um, You know, we do monetize still with brands coming to us and they come to Motherly, one, because they want us to help translate their brand through ours to reach our audience, but also because they want data and they want to under, they want to work with a partner that understands this demographic they're trying to target. And so this raises our credibility there. And then increasingly, it's putting us more on the national stage as well. A lot of companies do surveys and studies most do not do the hard work of making sure it's statistically significant and really valuable data. 
That is so interesting. And that what I love about this probably more than anything is, well, with the exception of like the impact that this data can have, but one of the things, and this is probably one of the hardest things, is it's so easy to get stuck in your echo chambers because the people that are the loudest and people that have the most controversial opinions are typically the ones that are getting eyeballs. But what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, it's we are picking specifically based on what the data is telling us. Mm -hmm. We're not saying like this isn't a almost kind of like, for lack of a better word, a dogmatic view on the point. This is what's real. This is what we're actually seeing. And because we have the numbers, we can confidently say that that's accurate. Is that correct? A hundred percent. Things seem to be getting worse, not better when it comes to discourse in this country. And I've said truly, like, I would rather shut motherly down than contribute to that in a negative way. And part of it comes from our mission. We believe, and and by the way, I should note that when you have a founder CEO running a business, the brand is the founder, right? In a lot of ways. Um, And I've been very purposeful, as I said, to get out from behind myself. But this is not changing as long as I'm founder, right? And CEO in this role, co-founder in this role as CEO. And so we believe that when a mother thrives, families and communities can thrive. That mom is the foundation of society and increasingly of our economy, as our study shows. But that means that every mom needs to feel like she can come to motherly to get the information, the inspiration that she needs to thrive. And so I use a really radical example, um, but this is about like gun control, right? So of course, in this country, we have an outsized number of school shootings and of really tragic events that happen. Gun control is a really like divisive conversation in this country. Motherly, as always, leans into the experts. And so we empower mom with information from the American Academy of Pediatrics around gun violence being like the number one cause of death of children. We talk about ways that you can, if you are a home, a gun owner, how you can protect that. If you want to advocate, these are the ways to do it. And the reason that we're doing that is that mom is not aligned on this in this country, despite all of the things. She's not aligned on true, like, or what her understanding is of what gun control in this country looks like. And I use an extreme example that I want that mom, I don't know who this mom is or if she exists, but like living on a militia in Oregon, as an example, to still feel like she is welcome at motherly because her child deserves to have a mom that has been empowered and educated by motherly. And so this is not a place for motherly to stand and to take like a massive stand on. We will share and empower and educate, you know, through things and hopefully drive the conversation forward in that way and create a safe space for there to be discourse around this topic. But then on things like affordable childcare, where moms have said that they will cross party lines to make that happen, we will advocate from the rooftop for because we're her voice. Such a good strategy for- Refreshing in media. Yeah, it's (laughs) interesting. I wasn't even thinking about this when I was kind of just doing my research for the interview just in general. And I was looking at the survey from a totally different lens. But I would tell you, now you've got me thinking of- I would love to partner with somebody to do something in in my world. It won't have nearly the impact yours will, but um, yet it might think big. Yeah, well, it's just it's just so interesting, and I think that that's such a better way to drive the content strategy Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. just kind of what's going to drive the most eyeballs. I think that's I I love that, and it it gives you the trust. Trust and credibility is earned over time. It gives you the trust and credibility to be leading the conversation. And that's what we want to be doing at Motherly. We believe we have earned the right to be leading the conversation because of the hard work that we've done. I love that. I love that. Jill, last question I have for you is if you can have a conversation with your younger self, age totally up to you, what would that conversation be? What advice would you give them? 
So I thought of this the other day, actually. I said before, before we started recording how, um, I think it was before we started recording, how kind of shocked I am that I've ended up in this world of, of parenting and working with, you know, a outsized, you know, portion of our staff as women. Like I work with women every day, all day. I also have two daughters. Um, and if I could talk to myself as a high schooler, when I found it really hard to connect with other girls my age, and if anything, I was really turned, I have three brothers too, so that might've been part of it, but I was really turned off by just the culture of, of women and, and of girls at that time. If you had told me then, or the advice I would have given myself is like, be open to that changing and evolving. And I honestly, it was something that saddened me. It was something that like, I didn't feel like I had real female support and power and love, right, in that way. And if I could tell myself to just like, hold on, you are going to not only, you know, experience the joy of like sisterhood and womanhood and through motherhood and that motherhood is going to be an opportunity to actually, it's going to give you superpowers through this. I would have been shocked and surprised. And yeah, I would, I would tell myself just to like, hold on and be open to the power of like female, of just women in general and the role that I could ultimately have in that. Would you ever have thought you'd be where you're at now? With that comment, do you almost kind of look back and just kind of look like, wow? I mean, it's so bizarre, actually, to me. I mean, it really is. Like, having three brothers, like, no sisters, like, all of these things coming the way that they have. I actually credit, it wasn't really until college and then grad school that I started to, like, really bring in women into my heart and into my life in, in a powerful way. And then being blessed with having daughters has been just like the ultimate gift for me. And I think really has given me wings in a way because of that concept I said before, of like, if you see it, you can be it. I feel a responsibility to leave this world better for them than it is for me and to show them what's possible. Uh, that's amazing. Jill, this has been a ton of fun. I'm so glad we can connect. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed Jill and I's conversation. I took a ton of notes from this episode personally. And if you want to learn more about Jill, you could find her on LinkedIn in the show notes. Also, if you like this episode, you could find me on LinkedIn to let me know. And if you really want to support the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is very much appreciated. Thanks for listening, and I'll see everybody next week.